Good morning. This morning, we continue in our series of studies in the book of Revelation, in chapter 4. And as we look at chapter 4, we can prepare our hearts to look through the veil, beyond this world, into the next, as John is caught up into heaven and receives a heavenly vision. Now, in this vision, it's important to know that there are some things that are somewhat literal and some things that are symbolic and some things that are meant to paint a picture. Remember, visions oftentimes are more symbolic than literal. Sometimes there are things that happen in a vision that are meant to be taken literally, but most of the time these things are meant to make an impact on our understanding of God in a way that helps us because we couldn't possibly take in who God is. So we receive visions and symbols in a vision, and John shares them with us, and it helps us to understand what words couldn't possibly or, or practically express. And I'll do my best this morning in chapter 4 to help you to see those things. The most important thing, of course, is that we see Jesus, for this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you. This morning we ask that as we open up your word, you would speak to our hearts and show us the truth of eternity. As we see you on your throne, may we be reminded that you're on your throne even now and that all of the things taking place in this crazy world are by your command and ordination. That even the wickedness that takes place in our world, while not your doing, is allowed for your purposes until the time comes where you intervene in our world and rule and reign for a thousand years. We look forward to that day. May your will be done. May your kingdom come. And we pray that that would happen soon. But in the interim, in the meantime, Lord, may we trust you in this crazy world. And may this morning's study help us to see the truth of who's in control. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, going back a few weeks when we were in chapter 1, I explained to you that in chapter 1, verse 19, we're given an outline of how to understand and interpret the book of Revelation. John was told in verse 19 of, verse, uh, of, of chapter 1, Write, therefore, what you have seen, and that would be the vision of chapter 1. What is now? And that would be the letters to the seven churches dealing with the church age, which we have done for the last many weeks. And then he says, and what will take place later? So the implication is that the things we're going to talk about now, starting in chapter 4, are things that haven't taken place yet. Things that will take place later. Now, much later than the time that John wrote, but still later than the things we've experienced in our world. So everything we begin to talk about here, and it's important to understand this, this school of interpretation that we look at the scriptures in this way, chapter 4 through the rest of this book deal with things that have yet to take place. And people get very excited when we talk about prophecies, and especially when those prophecies have yet to be fulfilled. But we can get just as excited about the prophecies that have been fulfilled, for when God says something has happened, and it's happened, we rejoice. By faith, when God says something will happen, we know it will happen, but it's a little bit harder to understand how or when it might happen, 
because it hasn't happened. Having said that, as we look at chapter 4, it's important for us to start by just looking at verse 1. And in chapter 4, in verse 1 of the book of Revelation, John tells us that after this, and that would be after all of the things that we dealt with in chapters 1, 2, and 3, after this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had heard speaking, I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. So you see, once again, we're given that outline. These are the things that will take place after the things that had been shared in chapters 2 and 3. The church age, the letters to the churches, the different times in church history that we talked about from the apostolic age all the way to the time in which we live. The church age, God's dealing with mankind through his bride, through his body. He's the head, we're the body of Christ. And now, after this, things will happen. Implication, after the church age, things are going to happen in our world that we can only begin to imagine, and we have a limited understanding of, but everything we do understand about the future, we're given in God's word. It's not meant so you can predict what will happen in the next election or pick lottery numbers. It's not given so that you can know exactly what's going to happen. It's given, as the scripture tells us, we're told in advance the things that will take place so that when they happen, you will believe. When you see the things talked about in scripture fulfilled, you'll know that they were fulfilled and your faith will be increased. So that's the purpose of prophecy. It's the spirit of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So we must understand the purpose of prophecy is not for me to get up here and begin to tell you each and every little step of what's going to take place in the future. It's to give you the vision, share with you the vision, explain what it means, but never to be able to express exactly in very precise terms when or exactly what will happen. So you might say, well, what's the purpose then of studying it? Well, God wants us to know in advance the things that will take place again, so when they happen, we'll believe. Do you believe this morning? Say amen. Amen. Say amen, I had an extra hour of sleep. Say amen. Amen. In chapter 4, we've seen in this first verse that John was called to see, to see, to actually see what will take place after the messages that were sent to the seven churches. First thing he sees is an open door in heaven. And isn't it wonderful that the doors to heaven are open to us? You see, heaven is, a, is wonderfully open to us through Christ, who is the door. Did he not say in John's gospel, chapter 10, I am the door? He's the open door. All of these symbols speak of Jesus. Remember, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. So even the door speaks of Jesus. We were granted access to heaven, but only after the veil in the temple was torn open from top to bottom. Only then did mankind have access to the throne of God. And now we can enter boldly, as the book of Hebrews says, we can enter boldly into the presence of God, but only through Jesus Christ, our Savior. That door is not open to someone who doesn't believe in Jesus Christ. The door is only open because the door is Jesus to those who believe in Jesus. And it's God's own voice, the voice of God, that commanded John to ascend and to enter into heaven. It's important that you look at the language with me this morning, at the latter part of verse 1, and the voice I 
had first heard speaking to me, notice, like a trumpet. That's an important distinction. Said, come up here. Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. You see, this is the voice of Jesus that spoke to John from among the golden lampstands in chapter 1. This time, Jesus spoke to him in a loud voice, like a trumpet, but from the throne of God. And it may be confusing as we go through this revelation because there are many different pictures of Jesus. We'll see him as a lamb that had been slain. We'll we'll see him as the high priest among the lampstands of the church. We'll see him as a mighty messenger. We'll see him as the conquering king. Over and over again, there are these visions that are given in this revelation, and all of them are about Jesus. It wouldn't make much sense to call it the revelation of Jesus Christ if it revealed anything else or anyone else. So even here, this is about Jesus, and Jesus is speaking, but the voice like a trumpet helps us to understand what we're really talking about. Now, some of you may not be familiar with a teaching called the rapture of the church. I'm going to briefly explain it to you so you understand. There are some Christians that don't believe there's a rapture of the church. More more appropriately, there's a lot of argument about when that takes place. The simple truth of the rapture of the church is we don't know when it will take place. Jesus said it will come like a thief in the night. We know exactly when Jesus will return to the earth to rule and to reign. What? Yes, we do. It's exactly three and a half years after the abomination that causes desolation. Oh, when will the abomination that causes desolation take place? Oh, it's three and a half years after a covenant is signed between the Antichrist and Israel. Oh, see, until that happens, you don't know when Christ will come again. But you never will know when Christ will come for his church. When Christ comes for his church, it's called the rapture of the church. And there is a scripture, there are a number of scriptures, but I'm only going to look at one this morning so that you understand this isn't some obscure or esoteric teaching. In chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul refers to this when he says, For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So anyone who died in Christ will be given their resurrected bodies. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together. That word caught up is the word harpazo in the Greek. It's translated raptus in Latin. It's the word rapture. So those who are alive and are left will be raptured or caught up together with them, that is the dead in Christ, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Let me hear an amen. The best part is the last sentence. And so we will be with the Lord forever. You know, I don't really care about what happens after that. It's all good. It's all good. You tell me I'm going to be with the Lord forever? The rest of it's gravy. That is good stuff. But we are taught here in verse 18 of this chapter to encourage, it says, therefore, encourage each other with these words. Now, I've been known to be an encourager, even in the face of difficult political climates, even in the the face of false pandemics. I'm one of those people that will step up and encourage you. I'll also tell you the truth. All right? And uh, without getting into all of the nonsense that we're dealing with in our world, I want to encourage you with the truth that God is in control. And that when things get to the place where the Lord does not want us here anymore, 
we will either die and pass on to be in the presence of the Lord, which is going to happen to everyone at some point, unless the Lord returns before that and you're alive. And then in that case, you'll be raptured and caught up to be with the Lord. When will that happen? Well, there are some that believe it happens before the seven years of tribulation. There are some that believe it happens after that tribulation period has begun. And there are some that believe that it will happen closer to the end of that seven-year period. You know what's important to me? It will happen. It will happen. But isn't it interesting that before we talk about all of the things that will ultimately take place after the church age, the first thing that happens is John, who's a member of the church, is caught up to heaven. I think it speaks pretty loud and clear that the rapture of the church will take place before Daniel's 70th week or the seven years of tribulation begin. But if you put your hope in an escape clause, in an escape hatch, if, if you put your hope in getting out of all of the trouble that this world is going to experience through the rapture of the church, you're going to be disappointed. And you would be disappointed if you were a Christian in Iran right now or communist China or perhaps in North Korea, or other parts of the world where there are many Christians suffering for their faith, or the many Christians who have died in Christ, and we're told that they're going to receive their resurrected bodies first. So it would be wrong for you to think that the rapture is your ticket out of suffering, difficulty, and death. That's not at all what the rapture is. It's not even our great hope. Paul tells Titus, the blessed hope is his appearing. So our hope is in Christ's return, not for the church, but to, re, to rule and reign over the earth. But having said that, I'm okay with being taken out of the earth before a lot of the stuff really hits the fan. So when I look at this, I come to this conclusion. I come to the conclusion that God knows best. He knows what's best for this world. And there will come a point where the best thing that could happen is for his church, his people, to no longer be here. I think we all feel like that already. But, but wait, there's a work for us to do in the interim. So back to our text. John, I believe, is a symbol of the rapture of the church, which I believe takes place at the close of the church age. Before anything that we're about to talk about happens, I believe the church will no longer be on earth, but will be in heaven. Now... One other thing to sort of make this case. The word for church, which was used over and over again in verses, uh, in chapters 1 through 3, is a Greek word. It's ekklesia. It means a gathering. It was used to describe a congregation, the congregation of Israel, when Hebrew was translated into Greek in the Old Testament. It means the gathering of God's people, ekklesia. But it doesn't appear at all, again, ever, until we get all the way to the end and the closing of the book, after we're done talking about the things that will take place later. And it happens in chapter 22, verse 16. So we're going to go from chapters 4 all the way to almost the end of the book without mentioning the word church. Now, why is that? Saints are mentioned. Israel's mentioned. But the church is not mentioned. I think conspicuous by its absence, it tells us that we're no longer talking about the church of Jesus Christ because the church is in heaven. In fact, when we talk about the saints in heaven who overcame through the blood of the Lamb, they are in heaven. So either they're in heaven because they died or because they were raptured. Having said that, John was about to see, God was about to show John a revelation of Jesus Christ in the future following the church age. So no longer are we going to talk about the church, not for a while. 
But John was called not just to see what must take place after the messages were sent to the churches. John was called to see the throne of God in heaven. And I want to remind you that when you step out of the earth, time doesn't really exist in the way that we understand it. Okay, time is a property of the created universe. Physics has proven that it varies with mass and acceleration. So time is a property of our created universe. Therefore, when you step outside of the created earth and the heavens and all that God created in them, no longer is time something that we can really understand in the same way. You're stepping outside of the dimensions of time and space. So how long is a half an hour in heaven? That, that's a great question. It, it's just, when you hear things like that, and you will, you're going to realize, you know, John is just using imperfect language, earthly language, to try to express heavenly experiences. So if you'll forgive John as he tries to explain to us the things he's experienced, remember, no one could go to heaven, express those things properly. Paul even said there was a man, speaking of himself, who was caught up into the third heaven, and it wasn't appropriate, it wasn't lawful for him to even be able to explain or express those things. So having said that, these symbols are powerful, they're deep, they're profound, but most often they're not literal. Now, John was called to see the throne of God. And we're going to see symbols that if you look a little bit more deeply, will give you a better understanding of who God is. Let's look at verses 2 through the first part of verse 6. At once, John says, I was in the Spirit. And there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper or a diamond. And carnelian, which also could be translated a sapphire or ruby. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne, and surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their head, or wreaths of gold on their head. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits, or more appropriately translated, the sevenfold spirit of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. That is a vision of God's throne. I think some of the aspects of what John experienced describe very literally what he saw. But remember that a vision is more than what you see, it's what it means. Ezekiel, Isaiah, John, Daniel, others experienced visions of heaven that were profound and descriptive, but many times weren't necessarily an actual or literal experience. Having said that, some of what he saw is true. There was a throne, and he's describing the throne and what he saw. But if I left it there, you'd miss a lot. There's so much symbolism in what he saw that we need to back up. He tells us he's once again in the spirit, just as he had been in chapter one. As he enters heaven, he says, I'm in the spirit. What does that mean? Well, you know, we oftentimes say, oh, I'm in the spirit. It's a kind of a description of how we feel. But here in the spirit, and of course, the scripture tells us that no one calls him Lord, but by the spirit, we can't be in God's presence unless we're in the Holy Spirit. And John is basically letting us know that he's in the spirit. God and his spirit has brought him to this place. And then John described the one who was seated on the throne. 
Could you ever really find the language to describe God? The infinite, almighty God? No, you couldn't. And yet, John does a wonderful job of giving us the symbolism and the symbols so that we can begin to understand a little bit about God. But his ways are above our ways, thoughts above our thoughts. His knowledge is so vast, there's no point in us trying to explain God down to a small, minuscule understanding that we could possibly grasp. Yet there is a vision here, and there are things that we can understand about God. First, God is seated on the throne. Can I hear an amen? I want you to remember that this week. I want you to remember that in two years in the next election. I want you to remember that each and every day that the liberal media tells you the sky is falling. I want you to remember that God is in control. He's seated on the throne. Even when the world and our nation and our culture is filled with corruption, and it clearly is, even though the greatest threat to our democracy is those individuals or are those individuals in power, we do know this, God is in control. Can I hear an amen? God is on the throne. He saw God on the throne. We could stop there and you could go home and you got enough to digest today. Have you meditated on that truth that God is on the throne? Because that will encourage you. That will sustain you. That will give you the vision to continue to believe and trust in God. But he described the one that was seated on the throne. He had the appearance of Jasper and Cornelian. Those words mean very little to me, so I looked them up. And I found out that Jasper is also used to describe a diamond, which is brilliantly clear, and it speaks of God's glory as the Son of God. His appearance like a diamond. We all understand that. That's the language we would use. But also a carnelian or a sardine stone or a ruby. Now, a ruby, we know this, I'm sure, is red or flesh tone. And it speaks of Jesus' sacrifice as the Son of Man. So you have this diamond and you have this ruby. You have this glory of God and this redness, this red stone, describing or at least pointing us, hinting at the truth of Christ's sacrifice, his blood sacrifice for us. And that's interesting, but it gets deeper. Because you see, these two stones are the first and the last stones within the high priest's breastplate, talked about in Exodus 28. Let me explain. The high priest wore an ephod and a breastplate, and on that breastplate there were 12 stones, and each of the stones represented each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And each of the 12 tribes of Israel's names meant something. Literally translated, each of those sons, their names had a message because their names meant something in Hebrew. And so you have these 12 stones, and of course the Jews and the Israelites are very familiar with this. And the first and the last of the high priest's breastplate were the jasper and the carnelian, or the diamond and the ruby. Now the carnelian is the stone of the tribe of Reuben. Now that matters because Reuben in Hebrew means, Behold a son. Behold a son. And then you have the jasper stone. That diamond, which is the stone of Benjamin. And in Hebrew, Benjamin means the son of my right hand. Now, I think you'd have to be blind not to see that the symbolism of even the stones and the colors point to Jesus. 
Remember, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Yes, the colors matter, but the meanings of the stones and the sons of Israel that they point to reveal, behold the son, son of my right hand. They speak of Jesus. They reveal Jesus. Oh, his throne was encircled by a rainbow, but that rainbow resembled an emerald, which is kind of a strange rainbow. We see a lot of strange rainbows in our culture today. I always learned Roy Jabiv, right? Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. It must have taken one out. Sometimes you see more. Sometimes you see, like, many more colors. But the rainbow that God gave us is not the rainbow that the world has embraced. In fact, the world that the rainbow has embraced is evil and wicked and celebrates sin. Though we love people, we must admit what's celebrated by those symbols is wrong, according to God's word and in God's eyes. But this rainbow is a rainbow, and it's described as being a rainbow resembling an emerald. I've never seen something like that. I guess we have to figure out that what he's describing is that prism-like experience around the light of the throne of God. That's the rainbow. But the color itself wasn't Roy Jabiv. It was was just green. Now, why would that be the case? Well, following the symbolism, of course the rainbow was God's covenant of mercy with mankind through Noah. See, when, when God brought the rainbow into the sky after the flood, it was God's way of saying, never again will I destroy the earth through the flood. And that was important because, you know, when the rain would start, they would... uh, Can you imagine the PTSD? When it rained after the flood, I mean, it had never rained on the earth. And then now they have this worldwide flood. And then, of course, it rains again. And the first rainstorm, I'm probably thinking they were... We should have just built another ark. But no, God said, no, when you see the rainbow, that is after the rain has passed you'll know that I will not destroy the earth by a flood. Now, we're told by Peter that the the world will be destroyed, but by fire. We had a long way to go in our studies in the book of Revelation to get to that, so we'll leave that for now. But the rainbow was God's covenant of mercy with mankind through Noah. And the one prayer I do have for those that fly a corrupted version of that in front of their churches or their homes or at their schools, the one thing I would like to really say is that my prayer is that God would be merciful to those people and show them the truth of God's love. Now, following the symbolism, the the emerald is the stone of Judah, the tribe of Judah. And you probably know that Judah in Hebrew means praise. So here you have three things. Behold, a son, son of my right hand, praise. That message is subtle, but it's strong. You're going to see in heaven that Jesus Christ, as God the Son, God the Father, and God the Spirit, is praised in heaven. The Son, the Son of God's right hand, is praised in heaven. That subtle message, encoded message right there, just in the colors around the throne of God, tells us that the revelation of Jesus Christ is that Jesus is worshipped in heaven as the Son of God, God's at God's right, ha- right hand, and he's praised forever and ever and ever. Okay, well, let's continue. That's a lot, but let's continue. It's important to note that God, the Son of God, is seated on the throne of God. Now, in verse 4, we looked at it already, John described 24 elders. Who are these 24 elders? They're seated on thrones surrounding God's throne, and Jesus did say to his disciples that you'll all sit on 12 thrones 
judging the tribes of Israel. So there's precedent for this idea that in heaven there are lesser thrones or lesser places of importance and authority. Now, the number 24 is interesting because when David established the priesthood, he established 24 divisions for the priests, and the priests represented all Israel before God. That's in 1 Chronicles 24. So the number 24 is a number that's used to represent a larger group of people. These 24 elders, I believe, represent all of the redeemed of mankind. They're not just a number of 24. They represent all of us. In fact, you probably know this. We've talked a little bit about it already. In the Old Testament, Israel was represented by 12 patriarchs or 12 tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. That's a number of government. That's a number of administration. But in the New Testament, the church was represented by 12 apostles. That number, 12, comes up a lot in the scripture. It's a symbol of God's order. But when you take the 12 from the Old and the 12 from the New Testaments, you put them together, you have the number 24. And I think that's the key to understanding who these 24 elders are. They are all of us. They are representative of the church because when you see this vision in heaven... You'll see there are four living creatures, but there's also 24 elders around the throne. You might be asking, well, where are we in heaven? Well, we're seeing here that we surround the throne of God. Amen? Our place in heaven is around the throne of God. Not on the throne, although Jesus does say, to he who overcomes, you'll have the right to sit with me on my throne. The idea is that we'll co-reign with him, rule and reign with him. But it's important to know that the throne of God is at the center, surrounded by other orders of creation, but we are there surrounding the throne of God, not necessarily at the center. And so these 24 elders wear white clothing. We we talked about this even just last week. The white clothing represents Christ's imputed righteousness to all of his redeemed. Think about Christ's righteousness as something that you're given like a garment, like, like a coat, like a robe that you can put on, but you didn't make it, you, you, you didn't create it, it's not yours, but you put it on. That's how we receive the righteousness of Christ. It's his righteousness, fancy word, imputed to us, given to us, and we wear the white robes. It's a way of saying, I'm righteous in Christ. So that tells us right away that these 24 elders are not angels, they are the redeemed of all mankind. And also they wear golden crowns, or more properly stated, wreaths, like like the wreaths we might imagine are laurel wreaths. These golden wreaths represent Christ's victory. They were wreaths of victory given to the winners of Olympic events. And these redeemed, with these wreaths, represent Christ's victory over sin on the cross. You see, again, it's something we wear. It's something that's on us, but not something from us. It's something that Christ did for us. It's the wreath of victory he placed on our heads, but it's his victory over sin on the cross. These redeemed in heaven will receive their reward after the rapture of the church. When the church finds its way into the presence of God, we are rewarded not on the basis of our own righteousness, but Christ's righteousness. And we are given victory over sin and death, not through our own works, 
through our own achievements or accomplishments, but through Christ who said on the cross, it is finished. So this is a revelation of the judgment seat of Christ. You know what I love about the judgment seat of Christ? Is that only those that love Christ find themselves at the judgment seat of Christ. There is a great white throne judgment. We'll talk about that in the future. But there's the judgment seat of Christ where all those that love him stand before him and are seen as Christ righteous, victorious over death because of Christ. So fear not the judgment of God, brothers and sisters, because the judgment of God came upon Christ on the cross. And if you put your faith in him as your personal Lord and Savior, not only are you seen by God as righteous, as righteous as Christ, but victorious over sin and death through Christ's accomplishment on the cross. Can I hear an amen? I mean, that's the gospel. That's good stuff. So, if we see ourselves like this, there's no room for self-deprecation. There's no room for being down on yourself. There's no room for thinking, oh, I think God is mad at me. There's no room for thinking that God hates you or that God is trying to destroy you. He has saved you from yourself and from sin and from the hell that awaits those that would reject Christ. And John describes a storm in verse 5 that's about to burst forth from the throne of God, the rumblings of thunder the the, the rumblings, the the lightning, the peals of thunder, all of this, he's describing a, a storm is about to burst. Something's about to happen. And then he describes the seven lamps. Now, in chapter one, we talked about seven lamp stands. Those were not menorahs. Those were single lamp stands representing each of the seven churches that Jesus wrote to. Here, as is, as was the case in the tabernacle and as was the case in, in the temple as well, there was a menorah in each of those places of worship. Here at the throne of God, you have the seven lamps or the seven lamps of the menorah, the lampstand, blazing before the throne of God. And we're told, lest we try to interpret it differently, that these lamps represent the sevenfold working of the Holy Spirit. I've shared with you before in Isaiah chapter 11, how there's uh, a key to understanding this. It's, it's very interesting. Remember, seven is a number of perfection. It's a number of completion. It speaks of God's perfect work, of course. But there's even a scripture speaking of the Messiah in chapter 11 of Isaiah. In verse 1, it says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Jesse's the father of David. Christ is the son of David. And his roots, from his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Now, we're speaking of the Messiah symbolically, poetically, prophetically. And notice in verse 2, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. So a sevenfold description of the spirit of God upon Christ the Messiah. But it begins to help us to understand that we're not speaking about a lampstand. It's a symbol of the Holy Spirit. We've seen God on the throne. The the vision of God on the throne points to God the Son. Behold the Son, the Son of my right hand. Praise Him. But now we have the Spirit of God. Of course, the Spirit of God, who is God, one with the Father and the Son, is represented there in a way that we can understand. Now, there are not seven spirits before His throne. There's just the sevenfold spirit. And that's the better way to translate that. God working in sevenfold ways. And I've explained that to you already. Now, the sevenfold working of the Holy Spirit, 
Well, that's the Holy Spirit, the very same Holy Spirit that baptized Jesus. And the Holy Spirit, God, was upon Jesus, God the Son, in submission to God the Father when he walked on the earth. Very hard to understand that. Actually, it's impossible. But we know it's true. And then John described the sea of glass before the throne of God. And I wouldn't know what this is except for the fact that in the temple, when Solomon built his temple, there was a bronze sea, polished bronze sea, like a mirror that was placed around the area of the temple. Now, because of the bronze sea, uh, we look at the sea of glass and we assume it's a very similar symbolism because the bronze sea represented God's pure and holy judgment. Bronze is a metal that points of God to God's judgment, the purity of God, the judgment of God, bronze or brass. But that was a bronze sea on earth. In heaven, it's a crystal sea. But I believe it speaks of the same purity and judgment of God. All of this we see in vision around the throne of God. But there's more. In verses 6, the latter part of verse 6 through verse 8, we're introduced to four living creatures, four beings. These are not people. These are angelic beings, created beings, but very strange. But remember, it's not so much what they look like. It's what the symbols mean, what they represent. So let's look a little closer. In the center around the throne. So that is closest to God's throne. So the 24 elders are not this close, but the four living creatures are. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. And each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. We're familiar with those words from the hymn that we sing. Now, I don't want to make too much of this because we're not here to study the four living creatures, but these angelic creatures are possibly the highest order of all God's creation. They may be the highest order of angel that we can possibly understand. They're so close to God's throne that they actually reflect his eternal nature. And they don't have an eternal nature beyond reflecting that of God. The way the moon reflects the light of the sun, it's very bright, but it's still the light of the sun. They're covered with eyes. What could that possibly represent? It represents the fact that God sees all things. He's omniscient. He knows all. He sees all. And the first living creature was like a lion. Some have suggested that that speaks of God's divine majesty. The second living creature was like an ox, which some have suggested represents God's divine strength, one of the strongest animals that they were familiar with. The third living creature had the face of a man, which represents God's divine intelligence, for man is far more intelligent than any other created being on the earth. The fourth living creature was like a flying eagle representing or some believe represents God's divine judgment, swift and alert. And so these symbols may very well speak of those things. They're characteristics of God's nature. But one other thing I want to mention, you know, God's covenant with Noah, represented by the rainbow, specifically mentioned these same four classes of life in Genesis chapter 9. There we're introduced to these four classes of life, man, mankind, 
birds, livestock, and wild animals. Four are mentioned, and it's interesting that they're mentioned, and then we see them represented through the vision of the four living creatures. I think it speaks of all of God's creation, but it also speaks of God's creative power. And John called them living creatures that had six wings and cried out, holy, holy, holy. Covered with eyes, again, reminiscent or representative of God's all-seeing nature. And they constantly praise God day and night for all eternity. They repeat these words, holy, 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 which is necessary. You, you can't say God is holy without saying it three times because God the Father is holy. God the Son is holy. God the Spirit is holy. The triune nature of God demands that you say it three times. And they call him the Lord God Almighty. In Hebrew, the all-powerful El Shaddai. And they call him Jehovah. Oh, I didn't see that there, Pastor Tim. Well, yeah, it's there. Jehovah, the great I am. Because notice in the praise they say, who was, who and is, and is to come. I shared this with you when we studied chapter 1. Jehovah, the word Jehovah, is a compound from three words, meaning he who is, he who was, and he who is to come. Jehovah is translated, I am, in Exodus chapter 3. But actually, it shows up in the Hebrew without vowels as Y-H-V-H. So, without the vowels, some have suggested, well, it's Yahweh. And some have said it's Yehovah. It's probably Yehovah. But having said that, what's important is that when they refer to he who is, he who was, and he who is to come, they can only be speaking of the eternal God. They're praising as holy, 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 and El Shaddai. These angelic creatures were seen around God's throne by Isaiah and Ezekiel. So this is not the first time in Scripture we're introduced to these living creatures. There's some slight differences, but Isaiah called them seraphim. He called them seraphim. And he described them as having six wings and crying out, holy, 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 in Isaiah chapter 6. But Ezekiel called them cherubim. And they had four wings and four faces. And it is an interesting, each of them had four faces. And what were the faces? The faces of a lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. So the symbolism is consistent. And I don't know if they're different creatures, but they're possibly the same four creatures, just represented differently, or they can change form at will. But it's important to recognize one thing we know around the throne of God. There's an angelic order of creation, sometimes called living creatures, sometimes called seraphim, sometimes called cherubim, that are far above our understanding and don't exist in our world, but they exist to praise God around the throne of God. But they are not God. They simply serve God. One little bit of trivia. There's one other time that scripture talks about a cherub. And it's the anointed cherub that covered. In speaking symbolically of Satan before he fell, he was called the anointed cherub that covered the throne of God. So at one time, there might have been five. And that gives us some insight that maybe, just maybe, Satan wasn't an angel or even an archangel, but that he was actually a cherub, one of the highest order, if not the highest order of creation. And he rebelled against God. But that's a study for a different time. That'll keep you up tonight. Well, John described in verses 9 through 11 how the 24 elders 
worship God for all eternity. And it's a beautiful scene. It should inspire us to do likewise. In verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay down their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. What a beautiful scene in heaven we're given the ability to see through the testimony of John. John described how these 24 elders, which represent us, worship God for all eternity. They worship God when the four living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to God. So these living creatures worship God, and then we, in for, for all eternity, we, represented by the 24, worship God. They fall down before him. They worship him who's sovereign and eternal. They lay down those crowns, those wreaths of victory, representing Christ's victory over sin on the cross. Of course they lay them down. It's Christ's victory, and we owe him all praise for achieving it on our behalf. These 24 elders constantly praise God day and night for all eternity. They praise him who is worthy to receive glory, honor, and power. They praise him who created all things by his will and gave them life. This is a vision of God on the throne of God, and we have seen so much that your brain, like mine, is probably ready to go. But as we close, I want to ask you a question. I hope you can see it because it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Who is seated on the throne of God? Who is seated on the throne of God? Well, he is God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. He's the all-knowing, omniscient God of divine majesty, strength, intelligence, and judgment. He's the triune God who is holy, holy, holy. He is the Lord God Almighty, the all-powerful El Shaddai. He is Jehovah, or Yahweh, the great I Am, who is and was and is to come. He is the God who is worthy to receive glory, honor, and thanks. He is the sovereign and eternal God who saved us from sin through his death on the cross. He is our Lord and God who is worthy to receive glory, honor, and power. He is the God who in the beginning created all things by his will and gave them life. He is the God who became a man, died, and rose again as the glorified risen Christ. He is Jesus, who is worshipped as God for all eternity. Amen? Lord, Heavenly Father, how true you are to the title of this book. The more we study, the more we learn, the more we understand that Jesus is God. That the God we serve, you, Lord, are Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That all of those descriptions accurately begin to help us to understand who you are. We praise you, Lord, not just for who you are, although we praise you for who you are, we praise you for all you've done for us and all that you will do. And as we begin now to study all of the things that will take place in the future, May we never forget this truth, the truth of the throne room of God in chapter 4. May we always hold on to that truth, 
For no matter how bad things get, no matter how many cataclysms and disasters fall upon the earth, no matter how many, how many corrupt politicians find their way into office, it doesn't change the fact that you sit on the throne as God and are in control of all things. May you continue to encourage us through these words and as we prepare our hearts to receive communion. If there's any heart here today that doubts the truth of who is sitting on that throne, even now, may you touch their hearts. May you speak to their hearts. May you reveal to them that they need to come forward and receive the elements that speak of your death and your resurrection, your body broken and your blood shed on our behalf. And as they receive those elements, they can be secure in their knowing that they will spend eternity as the 24 elders, worshiping and praising you for all eternity because of their faith in you as their Lord and Savior. I pray that every heart would make that decision and come forward today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.